Beast Watch News, watching the rising beast of Revelation. This week, important economic news, the continuation of Israel's election turmoil and the religion versus state issue that keeps rearing its ugly head, along with my comments on President Donald Trump's connection to pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. But first, a look at the increasing chance of all-out war with Iran. Here's a bit of an embarrassing Iranian situation. Five armed Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps boats unsuccessfully tried to seize the British Heritage oil tanker this week in the Persian Gulf as it crossed into the Strait of Hormuz. Last week, British commandos seized an Iranian tanker carrying oil that the UK believes was intended for delivery to Syria in violation of both the EU sanctions on Syrian imports and the US sanctions on Iranian exports. So the Iranians retaliated by attempting to seize the British heritage. Well, the Iranians tried to make the British ship change course to stop in nearby Iranian territorial waters, but the UK's Royal Navy frigate HMS Montrose that was escorting the tanker from the rear pointed its deck guns on the Iranians, gave them a verbal warning to back away, and the Iranians backed away. The U.S. is now attempting to form a security coalition of nations to keep the Straits of Hormuz and the Persian Gulf open to oil tanker passage. In comments to media in Washington, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Joseph Dunford said that the U.S. is engaging now with a number of countries to see if we can put both in the Straits of Hormuz and the Bab el-Mandab. The Bab el-Mandab is a located between the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa. He did not name likely partners, but he suggested that the government will probably be able to identify nations with the political will to take on the task over the next several weeks. Under the plan, the U.S. Navy would supply command and control and intelligence assets to support the operation, but allied nations would provide the warships used for escort and patrol operations. President Donald Trump has questioned the value of providing American security support for shipping in the Middle East, noting that the U.S. is not as dependent as other nations upon Persian Gulf oil supplies. He said we don't even need to be there in that the U.S. has just become, by far, the largest producer of energy anywhere in the world, he said in a Twitter post just last month. However, Trump must act to assist other nations as the nature's Tapia, which is experiencing an increase in hostilities from Houthi rebels in Yemen. Saudi military spokesman Colonel Turki al-Maliki alleged on Monday that Iranian-backed Houthi rebel forces had staged an unsuccessful bomb boat attack at the Strait of Bab al-Mandab. According to al-Maliki, Saudi coalition forces foiled the attempt. 
There appears now to be a developing wrinkle among the Arab nations now that they are getting all this U.S. help. For years, U.S. allies in the Persian Gulf have pushed Washington to get tough on Iran. But now, with the prospect of real war on the rise, they're not quite so clear about what they want. Many Arab officials and analysts in the Gulf are looking to the U.S. to be even more forceful in deterring Iran, while also more careful about provoking it. Given mixed signals from the Trump administration, the region are a little nervous and are sending conflicting signals of their own. The escalating tensions in the Persian Gulf have exposed differences between the U.S. and its regional allies, in part over how aggressively the Trump administration should confront Iran. Washington and its allies in the Gulf, such as Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, see Iran and its network of proxy forces as the primary threat in the region and have worked together to cripple these Arab allies differ over the usefulness of negotiations in resolving the crisis and the role these nations should play in ensuring their own security diplomats say. Even among the U.S. allied Gulf countries, there is little consensus on how best to confront Iran, with these countries likely to find themselves on the front lines of any military conflict with Iran. Some of the smaller states are hesitant to support the more combative stance of the United States and regional heavyweights Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The result has been conflicting public and private statements from both U.S. and regional diplomats. The remarks, analysts say, are evidence of a deeper struggle among allies over the contours of a U.S.-led policy that many officials and analysts here think could lead to war. In response to recent attacks on commercial tankers near the Strait of Hormuz, the United States squarely blamed Iran. Most Gulf countries, however, have refrained from publicly saying Iran is the culprit and instead have called for dialogue and restraint. Honestly, we can't point the blame at any country because we don't have evidence, the UAE's Foreign Minister Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nayan said last month of attacks on four tankers off the UAE port city of Fujairah. If there is a country that has the evidence, then I'm convinced that the international community will listen to it, he said. But we need to make sure the evidence is precise and convincing. Nayan's remarks confused and alarmed U.S. diplomats in the region. Some officials and analysts in the region worry that if the U.S. strategy of maximum pressure on Iran which the administration says is intended to force Iran to negotiate a new nuclear deal and give up its ballistic missile program and exposes Persian Gulf nations to the risk of a conflict, but without solid security guarantees. The signals coming from the UAE, which has strong commercial ties with Iran, have been more mixed, though there is a clear concern about U.S. resolve. 
Time has come for the Arab Gulf states not to put their eggs in one wobbly American basket when it comes to Iran and the region's security, said one prominent Emirati political analyst. The more assertive approach championed by Saudi Arabia and in particular by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman puts the kingdom at odds with some of the smaller U.S. allies in the region which want to see the crisis settled through negotiations. Kuwait and Oman, which have pursued bilateral relations with Iran, have long resented Saudi attempts to pressure them to adopt a more confrontational foreign policy analysts say now we're going to move on to Israeli elections Israel's Likud party led by Benjamin Netanyahu recently tried to cancel the upcoming September election to no avail the idea of canceling the elections simply came about because the Likud was reading the polls and seeing a massive drop in support ahead of the September election, which represented a panic move. More and more Israelis are beginning to understand that the vision the Likud brings to the table is harmful for Israel's future, especially on religion and state issues and its weak position regarding Hamas, said one analyst, adding that he expected many Likud voters to switch over to Israel Beitenu. The effort to prevent new elections may also have stemmed from polls indicating that nearly 70% of Israelis favored canceling the election in order to create a national unity government. Israelis also were concerned that Arab parties, which fared poorly in April because they ran on separate lists, might gain seats due to their intent to unify into a single joint Arab list for September. However, Knesset legal adviser Ayel Yanon has ruled the election must take place on September 17th, while leaving open the possibility of canceling it if war broke out. Would Prime Minister Netanyahu deliberately cause a war for this purpose? One could argue that Israel's constant bombing in Syria could be for the purpose of provoking Iran into a war, and what some see as Netanyahu's weakness on Hamas may be his way of allowing Hamas the leverage to cause war as well. And President Trump's continued escalating provocations and threats to Iran could be for the same purpose. Trump requires Netanyahu's government to be in office when the peace plan is unveiled. In fact, Trump is weighing revealing the plan ahead of the September elections. Why would he do that unless he believed Netanyahu would be in office, either by winning the election or because he already knows there could be a unity government formed? Hmm? And just so you know, I believe it is still possible there will be no September election, despite what is in the news this week, and that the unity government will form under Judaism with the Sanhedrin then ruling Israel. Benny Gantz has a plan. 
the Blue and White leader, Benny Gantz, has reportedly hired the services of a top strategist for Barack Obama's 2008 and 2012 successful presidential campaigns in his attempt to thwart the re-election of Netanyahu. Joel Benenson will join Gantz's team ahead of Israel's September 17th election. While Israel is battling the issue of religion versus state, another religious battle is going on between Israeli Jews and Ethiopian Jews. Just the mere fact that there is everywhere a distinction between Israeli Jews living in Israel and Ethiopian Jews living in Israel lends itself to suspicion of injustice and oppression by one community toward the other. This week, Israel continues to experience increasing national religious turmoil because of the death of a 19-year-old Ethiopian Jewish man, Solomon Tika, who was shot by an off-duty police officer in a Haifa suburb last week. The shooting is still under investigation. And while the protests are tied to the death of Solomon Tika and charges of police violence, demonstrators say they are also about the racism that members of the Ethiopian-Israeli community are exposed to every day. We came here together. How can it all be destroyed? How did this thing happen to us? How are we different just because we are Ethiopian, Tika's father, Werka, said in the eulogy for his son, We respect the laws and customs. Why are we not respected? We have to live together. Enough. Let us be at peace. Tika's father is asking the right question about why Ethiopians are considered different in Israel than other Jews. In a moment we'll find out that the Ethiopian Jews are not the only community facing discrimination. But for this community there is a scriptural answer that they just don't see, at least not yet. Ethiopian Israelis say they have long been discriminated against in housing, education, and employment, in large part due to the color of their skin. We'll talk about that in a minute. This incident is one of many highlighting the cultural problems between Israeli Jews and Ethiopian Jews. In this report, I will give you the background that is causing this ongoing situation. This is a much deeper problem than many people understand and one that is rooted in the 2900 year old war that continues between the house of Judah, the Jews, and the house of Israel, Ephraim, and the West. The officer, who was trying to break up the fight between three men, told Internal Affairs that the shooting was an act of self-defense, claiming that the suspect was hurling stones at him and his family. According to the officer, he felt that his life was in danger, so he pulled out his pistol and shot at the ground. The bullet ricocheted and hit one of the boys. An eyewitness to the shooting has reportedly said that contrary to the officer's claims, he did not appear to have been in danger when he opened fire. The officer was detained the following morning 
for questioning but released to house arrest after several hours. The ensuing protests turned violent after the funeral of Tika. Police reported that in the first day of protests in the aftermath of the shooting, there were 136 arrests and 111 officers wounded across the country. Rabbi Levi Sudri, in a Breaking Israel News article, believes this recent event is an essential, albeit painful, final step in the coming of the Messiah. And please understand that the Moshiach that Rabbi Sudri speaks of is not Yeshua. When we see these events happening in the streets today, we need to look deeper to search for their biblical roots, Rabbi Sudri told Breaking Israel News. Ethiopians have a strong oral tradition that they are descended from the tribe of Dan. Rabbi Sudri gets it. He knows this conflict has its basis in scripture, even if he doesn't make clear that it stems from 2,900-year-old prejudices by the house of Judah toward the ancient tribe of Dan, that they, the Ethiopians themselves, claim to be from the tribe of Dan, and the Israelis also make this claim is the important factor driving the continued discrimination against the Ethiopian community in Israel. Rabbi Sudri also said they, the Ethiopians, must make peace as they come back from the exile. With the Ethiopians, this is especially true because they were separated from the rest of Israel for so long and because of their skin color, the difference is accentuated. Well, skin color has been man's reason for injustice against others for time immemorial. The Torah prohibits inequality and all forms of oppression against anyone living on his land, Israel, regardless of skin color, which is just a straw man excuse. Exodus 12.49 says, One law shall be to him that is home born and to the stranger that sojourns among you. Numbers 15.16 One law and one manner shall be for you and for the stranger that sojourns with you. Exodus 23.9 says you are not to oppress the resident alien because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. This is more than just a skin color issue. It is a matter of injustice and oppression that has been ongoing in Israel since before Israel became a nation in 1948. The Ethiopian Jews in Israel are immigrants and descendants of immigrants from communities in Yemen and Eritrea, which is part of Ethiopia, called Beta Israel. And some of the Ethiopian Jewish community in Israel is also composed of a sector known as Falash Mura. Literally, Beta Israel means House of Israel. The Falash Mura within Beta Israel are converts to Christianity under pressure by Christian missionaries in prior centuries. This group was permitted to immigrate to Israel as Anasim, forced 
Christian converts, the Falash Mura endured another forced conversion to Rabbinic Judaism for the privilege of immigrating to the state of Israel. The first wave of Ethiopian immigrants began in 1934, before World War II and the creation of the political state of Israel. They gathered in Israel from Yemen and Eritrea in the Horn of Africa across the Red Sea from Yemen. Eritrea is bordered by Sudan in the west, Ethiopia in the south, and Djibouti in the southeast. Both Eritrea and Djibouti were once part of Ethiopia. Israel is now home to more than 144,000 Ethiopian Jews. Both the Ethiopian Jews and Israel's chief rabbis believe they are from the tribe of Dan, but not only of Dan. Their legal status, though they are Jewish converts, is that they are from the house of Israel. In 1973, Ovad Yahatsi, Israel's senior sergeant major in the IDF, took the question of the Ethiopians' Jewishness to the rabbinate, where chief rabbis Ovadia Yosef and Shlomo Goren both agreed that based on a rabbinic ruling from the 16th century's David ben Solomon ibn Abi Zimra, the Beta Israel are indeed actual descendants from the lost tribe of Dan. Now hang on, because another view came forward in April 1975 from the Israeli government of Yitzhak Rabin, who officially accepted the Beta Israel, House of Israel, as Jews for the purpose of the law of return which is an Israeli act that grants all Jews in the world the right to immigrate to Israel and later Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin obtained clearer rulings from Chief Shafardi Rabbi Ovadia Yosef that the Beta Israel House of Israel were descendants of the ten lost tribes this is a different ruling than simply saying the Ethiopians are from the tribe of Dan. And it is a ruling that impacts how Israeli Jews treat those who are not from Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, or Levi. The chief rabbinate of Israel required the Ethiopians to undergo formal Jewish conversions to remove any doubt as to their Jewish status. Yet, this has not caused the injustice or oppression to cease. Furthermore, some Ethiopians who want to make Aliyah are unable to do so even though some of those have converted to Judaism. The Interior Ministry has decided the law of return does not apply to Ethiopian Jews due to suspicions that they willingly converted to Christianity after suffering persecution during the last century and later returned to Judaism. According to JTA.org, American Jews celebrate the Ethiopian-Israeli story as a mark of Zionist success and solidarity, but have not grappled with Israel's failure to fully integrate the Ethiopian community.
We do not investigate the persistent gaps in educational and socioeconomic achievements of Ethiopian Israelis, the high concentration of Ethiopian residents in poor neighborhoods, systemic bias in the criminal justice system, or broader social discrimination, such as Barkan wineries eventually revoked practice of not allowing Ethiopian employees certain roles in their wine manufacturing in order to align with a strict kosher certification that casts doubts upon the Jewish status of Ethiopian Israelis. This article from tabletmag.com provides a different view to show the steps that have been made to help the Ethiopians integrate into Israeli society while still admitting there are deep and deepening problems. Tablet Mag says the discrimination against Ethiopian Jews is regrettable but not extraordinary. Israel has absorbed other large waves of immigration before, and all of them, from the Moroccans who arrived in the late 1940s and early 1950s, to the Russians who came in the 1990s, faced uphill battles to overcome prejudices and cultural barriers. Tablet Mag does not mention that part of the reason the Moroccans and Russians were able to overcome some not all, of the discrimination the Ethiopian Jews face is because the immigrating Moroccan and Russian Jews were already known as Jews in their Moroccan and Russian communities. Such is not the case with the forcibly converted Ethiopians forced to convert from being Christian House of Israel believers to Jewish Believers who had to deny Yeshua in the process. But we'll move on with this Tablet Mag article which says the Israeli government took concrete steps to close the considerable gaps that separated the Ethiopians from the rest of the population by establishing an official committee for that purpose in 2016. The committee issued a comprehensive report recommending everything from greater representation for Ethiopian Israelis on television to concentrated efforts to boost their numbers in institutions of higher learning, to setting up special task forces to make sure law enforcement officials show greater sensitivity when working with the Ethiopian Israeli community, these recommendations were taken seriously. According to the Citizens Empowerment Center in Israel, a substantial portion of the committee's proposals have been turned into policy. Also, the Israeli police made improving relations with the Ethiopian community a priority, conducting 80 workshops on the subject last year alone in its National Training Academy. In addition, the Police Department for Internal Investigation released data in 2016 that shows that complaints related to allegations of police brutality against Ethiopian Israelis resulted in the accused officers facing charges in 22% of cases, a comparable rate to complaints involving other Israeli communities.
After the Council for Higher Education, the umbrella group of all Israeli universities and colleges pledged $22 million to help Ethiopian Israelis pursue academic degrees. Their numbers among the country's overall bachelor's degree recipients skyrocketed. In 2000, only 704 Ethiopians received a BA. By 2018, that number grew fourfold, and the number of Ethiopian Israelis pursuing their master's degree grew sevenfold. This Tablet Mag article goes on to say that the Tika case is fascinating in part because it exposes a deepening foundational divide that has yet to be fully reflected in political discourse but is becoming more significant than traditional divisions like left versus right and secular versus religious that were for long thought to order Israeli society. So while attempts have been made at the governmental level to reduce the injustice and oppression, the discrimination, the Israeli government can no more change the hearts and minds of the people than the United States can change the hearts and minds of its people. The issue with the Ethiopians is not cultural. It is spiritual, coming from a religion that rejects those who are not viewed as quote-unquote true Jews. Table Mag continues explaining what I just stated, that on one side of this chasm there are those for whom equality and discrimination are problems to be addressed with effective policies that set up attainable goals measurable by concrete yardsticks. On the other hand, there are those for whom inequality and discrimination are sins, unameliorable moral failures that can't be redressed through the standard practices of politics, only absolved by means of repentance. The first group looks for solutions here on earth. The second has its eyes trained on heaven. This divide has far-reaching implications. Most grimly, it makes dialogue impossible. Try telling those who believe Israel in 2019 to be Alabama in 1965 that the state is successfully investing tremendous resources in eradicating inequality, or, for that matter, Try arguing that accusations of inherent racism are somewhat complicated by the fact that it was the state that mounted two hugely complicated military campaigns to bring Ethiopian Jews to Israel in the first place, and you'll be impatiently dismissed. For the true believers, observable reality is not the point. True believers have no room in their raging hearts for statistics. The change they seek is cataclysmic, otherworldly. Hence, their decision to resort to violence, attack police cars, and mire thousands of Israelis in endless traffic jams. A divinely sanctioned cause often finds a way to justify its means. Well, now, Tablet Mag... 
the change they, the Ethiopian house of Israel converts who are now without their Messiah Yeshua, are now bereft of hope. What they seek comes from a place deep in their soul that knows Israel is their home. The house of Judah continues to reject that anyone from the house of Israel has a place, an inheritance in Yahweh's land. So these house of Israel, like the mostly house of Israel Palestinians, fight back. Israel's election issue of religion versus state could create a real problem for Ethiopian Jews in Israel if religion wins the day, if the Sanhedrin gets its way. That is because religion is even more corrupt than man-made governments. Strides may be being made at the higher levels of education due to Israeli government programs, but education at the lower levels is still a problem. Just this week, the city of Petatikva has prevented dozens of families of Eritrean asylum seekers from enrolling their children in school according to a lawsuit filed against that central Israeli city. People should not have to sue their city in order to enroll their children in school. The injustices and oppressions of both the Israeli and Western Ephraimite governments will come to an end with the Great Tribulation. Here is what Yahweh has to say about his plans to stop the practice of injustice and oppression by people who call themselves by his name but are profaning his name. Amos 8.4 Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully? with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob let me repeat that Yahweh has sworn by the pride of Jacob surely I will never forget any of their deeds Shall not the land tremble on this account, and every one mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about, and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? On that day, declares Yahweh Elohim, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. On that day is a colloquialism for the day of the Lord which references both the great tribulation and the millennium Amos 8.10 says I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation you see Yahweh repeats this verse for those Jews living at the end of days the same warning as for those Jews living during Amos's time Yahweh will turn the feasts the Sabbath the pilgrimage feasts and the new moons 
into lamentation because his people have turned them into what they were never meant to be. First of all, Jewish feasts done with Jewish traditions. They are Yahweh's feasts to be done his way. However, their lamentation will also be brought to an end when they are made to mourn for an only son. I'm going to read the rest of Amos 8.10 now, where he says, I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. That mourning for an only son is the same mourning as Zechariah 12's mourning for the only son whom they, the Jews, pierced. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn they will suddenly realize they need Yahweh's grace and mercy they will need both grace and mercy because grace is what you get when you are keeping the covenant but you have messed up and mercy is for when you are not keeping the covenant and you have to throw yourself on Yahweh's mercy to keep him from killing you there is more in this Amos passage on how Yahweh will handle injustice and oppression among his people this is a prophecy targeting the house of Judah but we're going to find out that Yahweh mentioned the house of Israel and he will not tolerate America's injustices and oppression either this passage has a direct relationship to the Jews but also the tribe of Dan and the house of Israel listen to this Amos 8:12 to 14 they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord but they shall not find it in that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say as your God lives O Dan and as the way of Beersheba lives they shall fall and never rise again here we have a direct reference to Dan the progenitor of many of the Jewish converted Ethiopians who went to Israel seeking justice equality and a better life but they are not hearing Yahweh's word they are only hearing Judaism's false doctrines the reference to Dan is to the sin of the house of Israel who worshipped a golden calf in his tribal territory in the north. Beersheba is also a colloquialism, a reference for the Jews, the house of Judah in the south. And now another group of people from Indonesia are being targeted by well-known anti-missionary Tovia Singer.
we must ask ourselves if the Indonesians will fare better than their Ethiopian brethren. Why is Tovia Singer going after the Indonesians to make Jews of them? He believes they are from Sephardic stock who are Anasim, forced converts to Christianity. And he believes he is doing what the Lord said in Isaiah 11.11, which says, In that day my Lord will apply his hand again to redeeming the other part of his people from Assyria, uh, a reference to house of Israel, as also from Egypt, Pathros, Nubia, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coastlands or islands. As usual, Judaism interprets Isaiah 11 as only being about the Jews. But the entire chapter 11 is about the work of Yeshua, the true Messiah who comes from the tribe of Judah and his plan to restore both houses back to Israel. But like most Jews and Christians, Tovia takes one verse out of its clear context to superimpose another meaning on it. Verses 11 and 12 tell more of the story, but to get the original context, one must read from verse 1. Isaiah 11, 12 and 13. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. Who is Israel? The house of Israel. Who is the dispersed of Judah? The Jews. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Hallelujah! The end of this nonsense is coming. This Isaiah passage is not about people, specifically Jews, going around the world doing identification of who is a Jew and who is not a Jew, but about the Messiah Yeshua as a branch from the stump of Jesse doing the work of restoration. This is the work of Yeshua Messiah, my friends, not missionaries. We are witnessing the sisters Yes, the Bible calls them sisters in Jeremiah 3, verses 7 and 8, and verse 10, Ezekiel 16:46, and the entire chapter of Ezekiel 23. He calls the house of Judah and the house of Israel sisters, and they are rising together, experiencing the same problems, because the end and the reunification and restoration of the house of Jacob is near. Here are a few general examples I've put together of how the same problems plague both the United States and Israel. The United States has election scandals and failed political alliances. Israel has election scandals and a failed coalition. The U.S. experiences ongoing religious battles. Israel 
experiences ongoing religious battles. In, in the United States, there are national and presidential scandals. In Israel, there are national and prime minister scandals. The U.S. has a history of injustice and racism is just one of its injustices and there's a history of injustice racism discrimination in Israel in the United States there are border battles in Israel there are border battles and in the United States there is the threat of external war coming to its soil and in Israel there is the threat of external war coming to its soil because the sisters continue to perpetrate injustices and oppression of various kinds they will suffer the same political problems and in their final end will suffer the same punishment at the hands of Yahweh Now let's talk about the Trump-Epstein connection. Democrats have been plastering an old quote from Trump from 2002 all over the Internet saying, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy, Trump told New York Magazine in 2002. He's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. Also, it is being widely reported that Trump actually banned Epstein from his Mar-a-Lago resort after Trump caught him hitting on a young girl. Trump was the only one to help prosecute Epstein in 2009. This is according to Florida attorney Bradley Edwards, who represented one of Epstein's accusers. Edwards said, the only thing that I can say about President Trump is that he is the only person who in 2009 when I served a lot of subpoenas on a lot of people or at least gave notice to some pretty connected people that I wanted to talk to them is the only person who picked up the phone and said let's just talk I'll give you as much time as you want I'll tell you what you need to know and was very helpful in the information that he gave and gave no indication whatsoever that he was involved in anything untoward whatsoever but had good information that checked out and that helped us and we didn't have to take a deposition of him in 2009. I have often been accused of hating President Trump because I point out how he is being used by Yahweh to fulfill the bad policies that are required to bring about the final end. It is my job given to me by Yahweh to point out who the players are and what they are doing that is facilitating Yahweh's will to end the 6,000 year reign of man and devil on the earth and usher in the righteous reign of Yeshua, our Messiah, Savior and King. And when lies are being spoken of these end time anointed ones, it is my duty to point that out as well. Trump's accusers are lying. In fact, I did this for Barack Obama when people would castigate him using lies. Folks, 
The truth is negative enough these days. We don't need to lie about people to increase the foulness that is going on. You know, Bill O'Reilly of Fox News used to claim his show was fair and balanced. I want you to know that I try to make this show just and truthful, not fair and balanced, because just and truthful is Yahweh's way. Fair and balanced is man's. The Jerusalem report is designed to bring you Yahweh's kingdom perspective, not a religious or political one. And now the economic canary has stopped singing. Deutsche Bank is getting ready to lay off 74,000 people in its global. The world's leading bank will eliminate entire teams in Asia and Australia as part of its massive plan to restart some of its business operations. In prior years, Deutsche Bank operations have been the canary in the coal mine of the world banking system, you know, the one that other banks look to trying to determine the health of the global economy. Does this seem healthy to you? And according to CNBC's Jim Cramer, the market threw us a bit of a curveball Tuesday as investors avoided reliable defense stocks even after Wall Street received critical evidence that the global economy is stumbling. BASF, the gigantic German chemical manufacturer connected to the semiconductor, autos, pesticides, and consumer products industries, revealed on Monday that it may need to cut its full-year earnings forecast by 30%. The company blamed low car and crop sales, along with the U.S.-China trade war. Kramer called the dim outlook a very big deal. And according to the New York Times, the global recession risk is up, but the central banks are not prepared. The chances that the United States will enter a recession by next year have grown as manufacturing weakens and trade uncertainly, uncertainty rather drags on. In Germany, the unemployment rate has ticked higher and industrial production is slowing. In Japan, weak factory production and waning exports heighten vulnerability. Central bank officials insist that they are prepared to act aggressively if another recession flares. The ECB stands prepared to stimulate the Eurozone, and the Fed is signaling that it could soon cut interest rates to try to get ahead of mounting risks in the United States. But economists across the globe say central banks can no longer be sole saviors the next time a downturn hits. That reality is colliding with political constraints in the United States and Europe where lawmakers may prove unable or unwilling to quickly roll out expensive stimulus packages. That's it for this Beastwatch News Update. This is Kimberly Rogers-Brown signing off. Click over to BeastwatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end-of-days Bible prophecies.